If you've got your Bibles, open up to 1 John. Today we'll begin our new study, a series entitled, Do You Know That You Know? And it's a study through the book of 1 John. I love the book of 1 John. It is a great book. There is so much information packed into these five chapters that is worthy of us to study. It will take us a while to get through this. Uh, but I love this book, and I want us to understand. A lot of people ask the question, well, why, why should we study 1 John? Well, to be honest with you, 1 John tells us why we should study it. In fact, it tells us four different times why we should study this book. In 1 John 1, 4, it says, And these things write we unto you, that your joy may be full. So he says, I've written this book so that you might know how to have an abundance of joy. To be filled with joy. Now, I'm not going to talk about that just now because that's a part of the message today. But a couple other things he writes about in verse, uh, chapter 2, verse 1. My little children, these things write I unto you that ye sin not. In other words, that we may not fall into sin. That we may not fail and constantly go back into that old sin nature. He says, I've written so that we might help you with that. In 1 John chapter 2, verse 26, he says, These things have I written unto you concerning them that seduce you. In other words, he says, I'm writing this book so that you're not led astray. I want you to be able to walk the right path. So I've written this book that you might not be led astray. But the main reason why this book was written is 1 John 5, 13. And it simply says this, These things have I written unto you that believe on the name of the Son of God, that you may know that ye have eternal life. And that ye may believe on the name of the Son of God. He says, I'm writing so that you can know that you're saved. I want you to know that you have eternal life. Now, today, this, this message, and in fact, this whole series as we go through 1 John, is if you've ever questioned your salvation. Now, here's the thing. I want you to know as a pastor, the number one question I get, above all questions, the most asked question I ever get is, how can I know I'm saved? Now, this doesn't come from people who aren't Christians. This comes from people who have been in church for years. This comes from people who have been in Sunday school. This has come from deacons. It's come from teachers. It's come from leaders. It's come from all over. How can I know? How can I be assured? I've got questions about my salvation. And not only that, it out, goes out to those that want to make certain of their salvation. Philippians 2, Paul says, make, he says, work out your own salvation. In other words, the idea is know that you know that you're saved. In fact, Paul tells us in Ephesians 6, one of the pieces of the armor is the helmet of salvation. In other words, God knows that you're his, and you need to know that you're his. In other words, Satan can't come in there, confuse you, and make you think you're not his. You can know that you know. But this is also for that person that says, well, I hope I go to heaven. I hear that a lot. You'll hear people say, well, I hope that I'm going to go there. I want you to know you don't have to hope. You can know. That's what this book was written for, that you might know that you have eternal life. There's no more if, ands, or buts about it. If you are truly a child of God, you can know beyond a shadow of a doubt that heaven is your eternal destination. That there's no doubt about it, that it can't be taken away from you. You can know without ever doubting. And that's why we're going through this book over the next several months. Because I want you to know that you know. I want you to not ever have a doubt in your mind that you are a child of the king. But you'll have to answer these tests. There's actually 11 tests in the book of 1 John. And we'll be going over it for weeks and months talking about these different tests. Now, here's the thing. Nobody likes to take a test, right? Nobody, and, and, and if I gave you a pop quiz today, y'all might not like me. 
You think about it. I used to hate it when teachers would come in and give a pop quiz because it meant I didn't study. I don't know what they're talking about, and I'm going to fail it. All right? But here's the truth of the matter. John wants us to take a test. He wants us to go on a journey, and he wants us to answer these questions so that we can know that we know. Now, if you go through this, and as we go through those 11 tests, I want you to know you don't have to be perfect. All right? It's not like somebody's going to walk out of here and go, I'm 11 for 11. I'm good. More than likely, I just want you to know you're probably going to be in the 9 to 11 range. If you're in that 9 to 11 range, you can know that you know that you are his. There's just certain things you need to work on. Now, if you come in the range of 6 to 8 of the answers, and you say, well, I'm in that range, that's probably why you're questioning your salvation, because you're uncertain. You're in that that middle range, and you're like, you're kind of on that teeter-tottering edge, kind of like if you had a 69.5 in school, and so you knew you you were either a D or an F. It just depended on which way the teacher wanted to slide. And so if you're in that six to eight range, you're probably having questions about whether you know you're saved. If you are five and below, just go ahead and know you're not saved. You need to know that. I'm just going to be blunt. I'm just going to put it out there honestly. I had a guy one time, he came into my office and we were talking about this years ago. And I started going through First John. And as I started going through the different tests, he said yes to one. He said no, no, no. No, we got through six of them, and he was one for six. And he goes, well, I just want you to know, I thank you, thank you for helping me out. I just realized I am saved. I said, we got five more to go, and you're one for six. I don't think so. I said, I'm just going to be honest. I'm just going to be blunt with you. You're one for six, and there's five more to go. You think you're going to nail the last five? I said, if you're, not living the other five, if you're not living five out of those six, I promise you, you're not going to meet the next five either. Because they progressively get a little bit more revealing. So I want you to listen as we talk about this. In fact, one of these that we're going to talk about today is do you have fellowship with the Father and the Son? That's the first test. But let's take a look at it. We're going to look at all four verses, the first four verses of John, uh, 1 John chapter 1. And we're going to look at four discoveries about the Word of life. 1 John chapter 1, we begin in verse 1 with the evidence of the Word of life. It says, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon, and our hands have handled of the word of life. I want you to know that God has given a word of life all throughout Scripture. It is obvious, it is what God desires more than anything, is for you to know that you have life, and you have life in him. In the book of Deuteronomy chapter 30 and verse 19, he says, I call heaven and earth and record this day against you that I've set before you life and death, blessing and cursing. Therefore, choose life. Choose life. In other words, the message that God has had for the people from the very beginning is to choose life. It's to choose to live on. Now, he's not talking about a life in this world. He's talking about an eternal life. Choose to live beyond the scope of this realm. Choose to live beyond this world. God's message has been clear, and it has been evident. In Luke 19, 10, Jesus said, I've come to seek and to save that which is lost. That's the message. I've come to seek and to save that which is lost. That message has been roundabout from the beginning. Now, a lot of people say, well, wait a minute. In the Old Testament, it seemed like it was different. They had to follow the law. You understand that the law was simply merely meant to lead them to Jesus Christ. You realize that the entire Old Testament is about Jesus, right? You realize that everything points to Jesus. He's that sacrificial lamb. He's that Passover lamb. He's that one to come to take away the sins of the world. God's message has been clear and evident from the very beginning. 
Paul says in Galatians 1, verses 6 and 9, he says, don't let them distort the gospel. If anybody comes in preaching a different gospel to you, don't listen to them. Don't listen to them. The gospel is meant to save. It's meant to change lives. It's meant to move in a mighty way. And so he says, listen, I come that you might have life. He says, that which was from the beginning, this word of life. But look at some of the descriptions that are about it. It says it comes from the beginning, which we've heard. Okay, that's easy enough. If the, simply the message of God that we've heard, then we can move on. But he gives two more descriptions that really open our eyes to. He says, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon, and our hands have handled. So what he's talking about here when he's talking about the word of life has to be more than a message. It has to be more than a message. It can't just be the message of choosing life. It can't just be the message of eternal life. He came and he said, we can see it and we can handle it. So when he's talking about the word of life, he's actually talking about Jesus Christ. You say, well, how do you know that? Well, what does John 1, 1 tell us? It says, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. John 1.14 tells us that what? He was manifested. He was, the word was manifested. He came in flesh and dwelt among us. So this word, this word actually came in bodily form. You say, well, wait a minute. It says it was from the beginning. Well, that's very true. In fact, in Micah 5.2, it tells us what? It says, oh ye Bethlehem of Ephrathath, one who comes to you from everlasting in other words, Jesus is everlasting. He's, he's always been. It's not like he just appeared on the scene when he came in bodily form. He was with the Father from the beginning. He's always been there. He'll always be. But not only have we seen him at the beginning, it says we've heard from him. It was interesting when Jesus taught, he taught in parables. And he would teach and he would preach. And people would gather around him. They wanted to hear him. They wanted to hear his message because it was unique. In fact, they said, he doesn't teach like anybody else. He doesn't teach like the Pharisees. In other words, he didn't have to quote people. He was so intelligent and so smart, his wisdom was beyond any wisdom of any man. And so when he spoke, it stirred the people to listen, especially when he spoke in parables because they were almost understandable to some. And some had to go to him and ask him a few questions about it. Jesus would have private times of teaching and interpretation for others, but they could hear him. And it says, and then we, we saw him. We saw him. One of the coolest things is when John the Baptist actually sent men to Jesus, and they wanted to know, is this truly the Christ? And in Matthew 11, beginning in verse 2 to 6, it says, Now when John had heard in the prison the works of Christ, he sent two of his disciples. And he said to him, Art thou he that should come, or do we look for another? Jesus answered and said unto them, Go and show John again those things which you do hear and see. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear. The dead are raised up, and the poor have the gospel preached them. And blessed is he whosoever shall not be offended in me. He says, You want to see it? Look at the works that I've done. The blind see, the deaf hear, the lame are raised up. He says, I even preach the gospel, preaching the gospel unto the poor. You want to know why that's significant? Because that's not what they did. The Pharisees wanted those who were rich to be a part of the church or the synagogue. They wanted people who would give. But Jesus went to the poor. He went to the meek. He went to the humble. He went to the downcast. He went to the diseased. He went to all the people that the Pharisees and the religious leaders would not go to. 
Why? Because Luke 4, 18 tells us, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he hath anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to preach deliverance to the captives, and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty them that are bruised. He said, I've come to fulfill Scripture. I've come to do what God entitled and wanted me to do. I've come to be the word of life. I've come to bring life for all people. The disciples said, we saw it from the beginning. We heard it. We saw it. And then we handled it. We handled it. I love it when Thomas comes to Jesus at the end. He sees him and he goes, oh, now I believe. He goes, hey, come here. Touch it. Put your fingers right there where the nails are. Come touch my side where they had pierced him through. Come touch me. Come see that I'm real, that I'm not a ghost, that I'm not an apparition. Come see that I am the living, dwelling Christ. I am the one who has been resurrected from the dead. Come feel it. In 1 John 4, 2 and 3, he says, Here know ye the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesseth that Jesus Christ is come in the flesh is of God. And every spirit that confesseth not that Jesus Christ is come in the flesh is not of God. And this is the spirit of the Antichrist. In other words, you've got to believe that God sent forth his son. You've got to believe that he came in human flesh. You've got to believe that he took your sins upon his body and died on the cross so that your sins might be paid for. You've got to believe that the word of life was evidenced in and through the scriptures. You've got to believe these things. He said there's absolute evidence that Jesus came here. There's absolute, every time they try to disprove the evidence of Jesus Christ, they only end up proving it happens all the time. Every time they try to disprove him. One of my favorite, I love Lee Strobel. I don't know if you know his story. Lee Strobel was an atheist. His wife had come to Christ. After his wife came to Christ, he was an author. He wrote many books. And he said, you know what? I want to prove my wife is wrong. I'm going to study this Jesus, and I'm going to prove to her that she's made a mistake, that she's wasting her life, that she doesn't need to believe in him. He began to go to all these different professors. He began to go to all these different theologians, and he began to put together a case against Christ. And as he went to put his case against Christ, as he listened to theologian and doctors and all these different religious leaders, as he listened to them time and time after again, it ended up proving into his life that Jesus was real. And an atheist became a Christian while trying to disprove Christ. Let me tell you something. If you don't believe in Jesus today, I dare you to put him to the test. I dare you to check him out. I dare you to study and find out the truths about him. If somebody comes to me and they say, well, I don't believe in God. I say, well, here, I'll I'll just give you a simple thing. And so if you're in that case, I'll give you something simple. You can do it in three short weeks. And that is simply read one chapter of the Gospel of John a day. It's 21 chapters, one chapter a day. But you got to ask this question before you read it. you got to pray sincerely and say, Lord, if you're real, I need you to show me who you are. Just show me. I'm going to read this book. I'm going to read a chapter a day, and I want you to show me who you are. Here's the thing. Nobody gets very far before they find out that God is real. He was, there's evidence of the Word of Life. Number two, there's the manifestation of the Word of Life. Look at verse 2. For the life was manifested, and we have seen it, and bear witness, and show unto you that eternal life which was with the Father and was manifested unto us. It was manifested. The word manifested comes from the word phanero, which simply means this. It means to make visible what was hidden. Paul talked about it in Ephesians chapter 3. He called it a mystery. He said it's a mystery, and the mystery for Paul was simply this, that God had given a message to the Gentiles that they might be saved as well. 
In the Old Testament, the Jewish nation thought that they were the only ones who could be saved. They thought that they were the only ones that could have a relationship with God. And Paul says the mystery is, is that from the very beginning, God's message was not only intended for Israel, but it was intended for the entirety of the world. The problem was is it had been hidden from you because you didn't want to believe it. And now it's been revealed. Jesus Christ came to die for the world. He said there's this mystery and it's been manifested. You realize that here's the truth of the matter. God has revealed himself. He has revealed himself even to you who do not believe. You say, well, how do you know that? How do you know God has revealed himself? Well, if you read Romans chapter 1, verses 18 to 20, listen to what it says. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who hold the truth in unrighteousness. Because that which may be known of God is manifest. This is in the ungodly. It is manifest in them. For God has showed it unto them. For the invisible things of him from the creation of the world are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. Here's what God says. He says, every person in the world has had the evidence manifested to them. He said, it's creation. It's creation. He said, how in the world can you go out there and look at creation and say there is no creator? That would be like me looking at this chair and going, there is no chair maker. This podium, there is no podium maker. Looking at a kid and go, there's no mother or no father. You can't do it. The evidence is right there. It's produced right in front of you. To say that there is no creator, then there can be no creation, and therefore we just must not exist. We're all an epiphany. We don't, we're not real. But the truth of the matter is, this creation is real. And he says, you've got that manifested to you. But here's the thing. God doesn't stop there. He doesn't just give a general revelation. We also find that he manifests himself in a special revelation. In John 14, beginning in verse 21 through 26, he says, He that hath my commandments and keepeth them, he it is that loveth me, and he that loveth me shall be loved of my Father, and I'll love him and will manifest myself to him. Man, if you obey the Word of God, He's going to manifest Himself to you. If you seek Him, He'll show up. The Bible clearly teaches if you seek Him, you'll find Him. Here's the thing. He's not lost. You are. He's not lost. You are. So if you seek Him, guess what? It's kind of like playing hide-and-seek in reverse. You ever seen those kids play hide-and-seek and they don't quite get it? You see that kid, he's supposed to go hide. And after about 30 seconds, he's like, I'm here. I'm here. That's kind of reverse hide and seek. Okay? You understand, we're the ones that are hidden. And when we start to seek after the one who's seeking us, and we come out, we go, I'm here. I'm here. You'll find him. Amen. If you seek him, you'll find him. He says, you'll find it in the manifestation of my words. And then verse 22, he said, Judas, thus saith unto him, not Iscariot, Lord, how is it that thou wilt manifest thyself unto us and not unto the world? Jesus answered and said unto him, If a man love me, he'll keep my words, and my Father will love him, and we will come unto him and make our abode with him. He that loveth me not keepeth not my sayings, and the word which ye hear is not from mine, but the Father's which sent me. These things I've spoken unto you, being yet present with you. But the Comforter, which is the Holy Ghost... Whom the Father will send in my name, he'll teach you all things and bring all things to your remembrance whatsoever I've said unto you. You don't know how God reveals himself to you today? It's through the Holy Ghost. 
It's through the Holy Ghost. He will speak to you. Here's the thing. I, I don't know how many times I've sat in church before. And you feel that conviction come over you. You know God is speaking to you. And you got two options. Right? You got that option of denying it. No, it's not God speaking to me. That's just I ate something that wasn't, ain't sitting right. You feel that conviction. It's, it's such a conviction. You just want to stop listening. You don't want to hear anything else that's said. You sit there and during the invitation, you're gripping on the pews. I've seen red knuckles about to rip the pew backs off before. You know God is revealing himself to you, but there's no way you're letting go. It has to be something else, but the Holy Spirit is speaking deeply and sincerely to you, and you will not let go. I'm here to tell you the Holy Spirit will keep speaking, but there comes a point where you can quench him, and you can grieve him, and you can shut him off, and God says, I'll sear your conscience. I'll let you have what you want. But the Holy Ghost was sent to manifest the Spirit. To manifest us that Jesus Christ is real. That he came in the flesh to die for our sins. And he says here it has been manifested to us that we might know. In fact in John 1.14. I know I've read this scripture before earlier. But this is so powerful. John 1.14. And the word was made flesh and dwelt among us. Jesus Christ came down and dwelt among us. Do you realize what that means? What he went through? He was in a perfect place. In a perfect abode where he was worshipped, where he was glorified, where he was exalted. And he said, you know what? I'll go down there and live among men. I'll become a man myself. I'll go down there for one specific purpose. I'll live a perfect life. And when I get to the end and they're about to kill me, I'll take all the sins of mankind upon my body. I'll be forsaken by the Father and I will take the punishment for all mankind's sin and I'll die and three days later I'll rise again and I'll be glorified once again. But I'm willing to go down there and suffer. I'm willing to go down there and go through all this torment and torture that these people might be saved. He manifested himself in such a beautiful way. 1 John chapter 3 and verse 5, it says, And ye know that he was manifested to take away our sins, and in him is no sin. Sole purpose was to take away your sins and mine. There's no greater love. But he also came that, he says this in verse 2, and show it unto you that eternal life which was with the Father and was manifested unto us. He manifested eternal life. You realize what he's talking about there? John 3, 16. What for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. That whosoever. You like that word, don't you? I like that word. Whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting Life, But you realize what everlasting life is, don't you? John 17, 3 tells us what everlasting life is. Yes, it is a duration of time, but everlasting life is to be able to spend eternity with the Father and the Son. It's, it's knowing the Father and the Son. That is what everlasting life is all about. The fact that we get to dwell forever with the one who died for us, the one who loved us, the one who cared for us. Can you imagine? Just think about this for a moment. The God of the universe the God that created everything that we see and know. The God that created all the stars. He created all the planets. He created this entire world. He created everything that we know and see. And he cares enough to reveal himself to you. Who are you? Man, I ask that, self, I ask that question all the time about myself. Who am I? God, why me? Why did you manifest yourself and show yourself to me? Why do you listen to my prayers? Have you ever felt like that? You're the God of the universe. Why are you listening to a lowly man like me? 
I remember one time when I was getting ready to graduate college, a buddy of mine, he said, hey, I want you to come with me. I want you to, I want you to go with me. We're going to go check out Southeastern Seminary. We're going to go down to Wake Forest. I was like, sure, I guess I got to figure out where I'm going to go next. So I went down there with him, and he said, hey, we've got plans. We're going to get to go eat lunch with Paige Patterson, who was the president of Southeastern Seminary. He had also been the SBC president. I mean, as far as SBC life, he was a big name. He was a part of that conservative resurgence that moved and did great job, did great works in and through the Southern Baptist Convention. And I thought, man, I get to go have lunch with him. That's incredible. So we went there, and we ate lunch, and I remember... Not only did we have lunch, but the, uh, the guy that spoke in chapel that day was also there for lunch. And I thought, you know what? He's here to really talk to him. I'm going to eat. I'm going to be quiet. I'm just going to enjoy that I get to sit at the table with Paige Patterson. I'm a nobody. When we finished lunch, he thanked the chapel speaker for being there. And he dismissed him. And he said, boys, you want you to come with me and come into my library. And he took us back in his library. And he spent an hour and a half with me and my buddy. And I, talk, I was sitting there. I was thinking, who am I? Why is this guy taking all this time to a college student that he doesn't know and he's investing in me an hour and a half of his life and speaking to me and talking to me about the seminary and how it's important? And I'm just sitting there thinking to myself, you're the president. You don't have to speak to people. you got people underneath you to speak to people. You know, you can send me on down the road to, you know, the administrator or the, the registrar or all this. You're taking, even though that was impressive, what I'm most impressed with is that the God of all the universes will speak to me and wants me to speak to him. And he listens. It's amazing when you think about it. He manifested himself that we might have eternal life, that we might have the knowledge of him. Number three, the fellowship with the word of life. Verse three, look with me. That which we have seen and heard declare we unto you that you also have fellowship with us. And truly our fellowship was with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. The word fellowship comes from the word koinonia, which means to have a shared life. A shared life. In Acts 2.42, it says that the disciples, what they, they continued in the word and in fellowship. Continued in the word with the disciples and in fellowship. They wanted to meet together. They wanted to be joined together. Have you ever thought about that? A lot of people don't realize why church is important. The Bible tells us that we should not forsake the fellowshipping of the brethren, especially as the day approaches. If we believe that God is coming back soon, we better meet more. We need to be in fellowship more. He says, we've come that you might have fellowship with us. We can have fellowship with other believers. But here's the awesome part. Listen to this. That you might have fellowship with us. And truly, our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. Can you believe that you can share life with the Father and the Son? That you can have fellowship with them? Let me tell you something. If you don't know that, if you don't have fellowship with the Father and the Son, you're not a Christian. How many of you are happily married? <laughs> the bad thing is I saw some of your spouses having to raise your hands. <laughs> Marriage counseling after service today. <laughs> now, I ask that question because you ask people all the time, what does it take to have a good marriage? And the number one thing is always communication. It's talking to one another. Could you imagine if all of a sudden the communication just broke down between husband and wife, that you didn't speak to one another? That you took a couple of days off and you said, you know what? I'm tired of listening to them. I don't want to speak to them. 
I need a vacation from my spouse. I need time away. Some of y'all are like, this is really sounding good. Thank you, brother. I appreciate that. (laughs) But imagine if it carried on for weeks and months and years. And somebody were to come to you and say, how's your relationship? How, How is your marriage? And you go, you know, I don't know. We don't talk. We don't talk. You say, well, why would you use that illustration? Well, that's the way many of us treat God. How's your relationship with the Lord? I don't know. We don't talk. Let me tell you something. He talks. That's why he gave you his word. You can talk. That's why he tells you to pray. If the fellowship breaks down between you and God, then how do you have fellowship? How do you love one another? How do you know one another? How do you have that fellowship with one another? The answer is you don't. It's evaporated. It's gone. It's it's not there. And the Bible makes it clear that if we don't have fellowship, then we don't have a relationship with him because we have not been changed by him. I love what John 3 tells us when, when Nicodemus comes to Jesus. And you've probably seen this many a time. It's in John chapter 3, verses 5 to 8. Nicodemus comes to Jesus, and Jesus answers and says, Verily, verily, I say unto you, except a man be born of water and of the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. That which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Marvel not that I said unto thee, ye must be born again. The wind bloweth where it listeth, and thou hearest the sound thereof, but canst not tell whence it cometh and whither it goeth. So is everyone that is born of the Spirit. you got to be born again. Now, you think about this. In order to establish your relationship with your spouse, number one, you had to get engaged. You had to present a ring to him. And you said, I want you to be my forever. I want you to be with you forever. You're mine. You put the ring on there, and then you got before the church. You, you got before wherever you went. It could have been some other place. could have been outside. But you got before somebody that could bring you two together, and you wed with one another, and you made vows to one another that you were going to be together forever till death do you part. You made those vows. When it comes to being a Christian, we're making vows. We're saying, God, my life is yours. It's not mine any longer. I don't get to do what I want to do. I want to do what you want me to do. I surrender all. We sing that hymn all the time. I surrender all. Do we really mean it? Because if we mean it, that's what we're telling. We want God, we want to be born again. We want to be changed. We want to surrender all. We want you to have all of this. And when that happens, I want you to know that when you have fellowship with the Father, it's transforming. When you have fellowship with the Father, it is transforming. 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 and 4, according, according as his divine power hath given unto us things that pertain unto life and godliness, through the knowledge of him that hath called us to glory and virtue, whereby are given unto us exceedingly great and precious promises, that by these you might be partakers of the divine nature. You realize what he's saying there, right? If you're truly his, you're being transformed. You're becoming a part of the divine nature. That doesn't mean you're becoming a part of God. It means that God is becoming a part of you. In other words, you're beginning to look more and more like Jesus and less and less like you. The fellowship with the Father is transforming. It's moving. It's changing. It's so that we don't look the same any longer, so that when people see us on the street that once knew us before we knew Christ, they can say, what's different about you? And you can say, Jesus. It's transforming. Not only is it transforming, but it's working. It's working. In Luke chapter 2, Jesus said it himself when his parents came to find him after they had left him. He says, didn't you know I'd be about my father's business? Let me tell you something. As a Christian, you ought to be about your father's business. You say, what is that father's business? Well, it's preaching the gospel to the poor. 
It's helping those that are in need. It's glorifying God the Father. It's seeking to save that which was lost. It's making a difference all over the world. It is manifesting Jesus in everything that we do so that when people see us, they know that we've been transformed and that we're now serving a mighty God. That's what we're called to do. And when you have fellowship with God, it is transforming. Let me tell you, that's what changed my life. When I got to a church and I saw that there were people in the church actually living out a relationship with Jesus... That was the question I literally asked them. I said, what is different about you? I've been going to church all my life, but there's something different about you. You love to worship. You love to pray. You love to read the Bible. You lo- what is different about you? And the answer was very simple. They said, you have a relationship with the church, and we have a relationship with Christ. Amen. It is transforming And it is evident within our lives. Lastly, verse 4. We have the joy of being with the word of life. How many of you are happy? Y'all seem real happy. Amen. I told Troy, I said, man, I really want you to learn a song today. You know what I'm talking about? Y'all heard it on the radio. I got the joy. Joy down in my heart, down in my heart, down in my heart. I got the J-O-Y down in my heart. I just, I love that song. Every time it comes on, I just want to scream at the top of my lungs, roll my windows down and be like, come on, sing it with me. It's one of them songs that'll just get you moving. Man, as a Christian, we ought to have joy. We ought to be so joyous that people look at us and go, I, you know, here's, here's the thing. <laughs> We're afraid of catch, catching COVID. Here's the truth of the matter. You ought to be ready to catch the joy. It ought to be infectious. So infectious that when people see it in you, it just bounces off of you to them. And they catch the joy and they want to sing about it. And they want to shout about it. They want to talk about it. Christians ought to be filled with joy. John 10.10, I've come that they might have life and have it more abundantly. That simply means to have it joy-filled. What drives me crazy are people who call themselves Christians and they are miserable. You've met them, haven't you? Man, it's such a beautiful day. We could use some rain. Man, it's raining outside. We needed this rain so bad. It sure is nasty outside. Man, isn't it great that your child got saved? Well, you know, I got two more. Man, we ought to be infectious with joy so much so that when people see us in our lives, they see us daily walking with the Lord, they want what we've got. That's the problem. There are too many people that claim to be Christian that are joyless. And the problem is, is guess what? The, the world doesn't want joylessness. They already got that. They need to see something in us. I'm, I'm going to be honest with you. I did not want to be a pastor growing up. I didn't. Because to me, I thought they were the most boring people in the world. I hope you don't think the same thing or I'm in trouble. 
I did. I used to think, man, they are so boring. Who in the world would want to live like that? I used to think church was boring, and I thought, man, who wants to go there? I mean, I really did. I used to think Christians are so boring. And the truth of the matter was, is I was in a dead church growing up. I was in a church that had no spirit. They had no life. They had no joy. They had no purpose. You hear that, right? No purpose. Church is going through a lot of problems even today. I don't want to be a part of something that's dead. I want to be a part of something that's filled with joy. And that's what God wants for us. In fact, in John chapter 15 and verse 11, he says this, These things have I spoken unto you, that my joy might remain in you, that your joy might be full. Here's the thing. If you got the joy of Jesus in your heart, you're full. I promise you can't contain all his joy. It will fill you up and it will pour out of you. As the old song says, I'm drinking from my saucer because my cup's overflowing, right? It's pouring out of us. In fact, in John 16, verses 22 to 24, it says, And ye now therefore have sorrow, but I'll see you again. And your heart shall rejoice, and your joy no man taketh from you. And in that day you shall ask me nothing. Verily I say unto you, whatsoever ye shall ask the Father in my name, he'll give it to you. Hitherto have ye asked nothing in my name. Ask, and ye shall receive, that your joy may be full. Do you realize God wants it to be full? And he says this, I love this. Can't no man take it from you. Don't you love the humbug Christians? The Ebenezer Scrooges? I'm telling you, man. I call them the old fuddy-duddies. And guess what? You don't have to be old to be an old fuddy-duddy. I've seen it in young people. You know what a fuddy-duddy is? You probably do, but I'm going to explain it to you anyways. An old fuddy-duddy is somebody that when you get them fire for the Lord, they want to put your fire out. They want to crush you down. They want to press you down. They want to keep your spirit. They want to keep you low. Can I tell you something? I'd rather have to calm down an excited Christian than raise a dead one. Man, I'm here to tell you, he wants that joy to be full. Can't be taken away from you. Man, that's exciting when you think about it. Because the Bible talks about our salvation cannot be taken away from us. In John chapter 10, verses 28 and 29, he talks about we're in the hands of the Father and we're in the hands of the Son. It cannot be taken away from us. Don't you love that? You can't lose what God has given to you. It's a gift that keeps on giving and it never runs out. It's like the Energizer Bunny. It never stops. It keeps going and going and going. There's joy in knowing that you have everlasting life. In fact, I love the way Paul puts it in Romans chapter 8 to help you understand can nothing, absolutely nothing can take away your salvation, cannot take away the joy of the Lord. In Romans 8, beginning in verse 35, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? As it is written, for thy sake we are killed all the day long. We are counted as sheep for the slaughter. Nay, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him that loved us. For I am persuaded that Neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, neither height, nor depth, nor any other creature shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Man, if that don't bring you joy, if that doesn't bring you joy, you're in a lot of trouble. 
The fact that you're, there's nothing that can separate you from the love of God. There's nothing that can tear apart that relationship. That should, as Christians, ignite us and put us on fire for Jesus to where we've got such joy. It is infectious and contagious. Man, I'm here to tell you. I know we just got started in 1 John, but I'm going to tell you there's so much to this book. But the first test is simply this. Do you have fellowship with the Father and the Son? Because if you're a Christian, you want that fellowship. And you want that fellowship because it's transforming and it is working within you. It is daily changing your everyday life. If you can look at your life, I promise you, if you can look at your life and say, you know what, since I've become a Christian, I really haven't changed. I've kind of gone back to the old ways. Well, let me tell you something. Jesus tells a story about you. It's called the parable of the soils. Harvester went out and he threw some seed on the ground. Some fell on the hardened ground. Some fell on some stony ground. Some fell on the weedy ground. And some fell on good ground. And he said they all sprouted up. He said the seed on the hard ground though, the birds came and picked it up because it couldn't get into the ground. And they came and picked it up and they ate it. He said, that's what happens. He said Satan will come along and he'll, he'll eat the gospel. He'll take it away from you because you're so hardened to the fact you don't want to hear it. You don't want to listen to it and he'll just take it. Because you're not going to listen to it anyways. He said, and then somebody casts that seed and it goes on the rocky ground. He says, what happens is you spring up real quick. And because there's no real root, because it's rocky ground, the sun comes out, scorches the grass, and it dies. That's the way many people are in church today. What happens is they seem to spring up real quick and they they look like they're Christians. But when the tribulations and difficulties in this world come, because they have no foundation in Christ, they burn up and they wither and they die and they produce no fruit. They're not Christians. He said, some seed falls among the thorny ground and it sprouts up. But the thorns wrap themselves around it and choke it out. In other words, the desires of this world. We get away from the desires of the world when we come to church, but then all of a sudden we want to go back. We think, man, the old life was better than this life, and so we go back to who we used to be. The Bible makes it very clear they are not of us because what they left us because they are not of us. They walked out. They walked away. And he says they end up dying. He said those that want to go back to the old life only prove they didn't have a new life. They're not saved either. He said, but then he throws some seed on the good ground. And he says, it sprouts up and it comes out 30, 60, and 100 fold. In other words, it's fruitful seed. And it grows. Those are the true Christians. Now, here's something you need to understand. You may say, well, I I think I should be like brother so-and-so. I should be like sister so-and-so. I should be like them. I, I should be growing at the same rate they are. You realize Jesus said that we grow at different rates, right? Some are 30, some are 60, some are 100 fold. The question is, is are you growing? It's not the amount of fruit you produce. It's that you're producing fruit. It's that your life is fruitful. It's that you're actually doing something for the cause of Christ. That you're working and living and glorifying him through your life. It's that there's a difference within you. Because if there's no difference, there's no fruit. If there's no fruit, you're not his. You say, why are you saying all this today? Because I want you to know that you know. I want you that when you leave church, you have no doubt that you are a true child of God. That you are his through and through. And when you know that, no one can separate you from the love of God. No one can take you out of his hand. Some people say, well, you know, I can, I can walk away. A true Christian is not going to walk away. They're not going to look for the exit. They're going to love where they are because they've never been more joyful in their entire lives. I pray 
that you know the word of life. I pray that you have fellowship with him. I pray that it is manifested in your life today.